Welcome to White Noise Season 2 Did I see you hit record? Yeah, well I just thought we might as well keep it rolling keep while, it. Just in case you said something good And then we'd be like, ah, oh, I didn't, didn't hit the button <laughs> So for context listeners, we ran to the end of the mic <laughs> the, the end of the SD card. The SD card, sorry. The, the mic still has battery, but we completely filled up. We were talking for about 20 minutes also after it ran out before we realized. I don't think it wasn't 20 minutes. Maybe like 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I hope. Fingers crossed. We will never know. <laughs> yeah. Josh, you know, revealed some spicy goss about his personal life. That, you know, that you yeah, it was actually probably the best 15 minutes of the podcast we've ever had. I would say, and you know, the listeners will just never, never hear it. You never know. That's <laughs> just for us three. Yeah, exactly. just for us three. <laughs> it was a magical time. <laughs> so, for all of you listening, where we last picked up was off. We picked up off, picked up, picked off. What's the phrase? Do you want to just try that again? <laughs> picked up at. <laughs> where we were just at, listeners, was Murray had finished introducing Hamilton and like the. Kind of like the the first bit of the problem about Hamilton. Yeah, is... the, the modern issues that are sort of arising. Yes. Yeah. But the next point is uh, <laughs> like looking at the actual book, like looking at the story of Hamilton. And that's obvious. That was apparent from when it was first released. And, you know, the obvious in like the obvious thing to point out there is that Hamilton, it's filled with non-white actors, but it uses that rule of not casting white people almost as a smokescreen to disguise the fact that there isn't, that none of the historical figures that are recreated in the musical were not white. It's the only non-white person named in Hamilton is in, when Jefferson is singing, What Have I Missed? He says something like, Sally went to BLM, darling, open that. Like, about a letter. And that's referring to Sally, I want to say her last name was Hemings? I'm a bit iffy there. But... Sally was one of was one of Jefferson's slaves who he who he raped like eleven times over the the course of her life and who bore him something like seven illegitimate children and it's just so it seems to me so obvious that they're building into this narrative of America being diverse and America being the place where you can achieve opportunities regardless of of your race but it's just so obviously like entrenching this idea of white exceptionalism by only focusing on the white people in the story of the American Revolution. And the, the thing is that like, it wasn't just white people who were involved in the American Revolution. It seems like such an obvious thing to have to point out. Like the frustrating thing is that Hercules Mulligan, tailor spy unknown to British government, had a black slave who arguably did more espionage than Hercules Mulligan himself. But he isn't even mentioned in the musical. And so it just seems like so frustrating to me to see the, the story of the Founding Fathers as these sort of mythical people just recreated in the modern time and lauded with all these pra- this praise and, and, and talked about as if it isn't just the same story of white supremacy that gets taught in American high schools, not actually referring to the flaws of the people at the time. What my report in year 11 was on is that 
until the Civil War, Americans' general opinion, especially in the North, of the Founding Fathers was largely negative. They didn't hold them high as these sort of like founders of a nation that the way that Americans in the world do today. And uh, much of that sentiment can, can be chalked up to the fact that they didn't, they had an opportunity to outlaw slavery and they didn't. And on top of that, there were obviously all the compromises with like the Articles of Confederation and the compromise in the, in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in which sort of the notorious three-fifths clause was in, were included. And, but it was only until after the Civil War, a war that was fought sort of undeniably on the idea of white supremacy. Well, not saying that it was not white supremacy versus white supremacy, because obviously it was just two different flavors of white supremacy. Um, you know, Lincoln famously saying that if he could have saved the Union without freeing a single slave, he would have done it in a heartbeat. But... It wasn't until that sort of reconstruction era when the nation was being rebuilt as one nation that you start seeing <laughs> that you start seeing this sort of glorification of the founding fathers. And that's basically continued to the present day. And it reinforces this idea of both American and white exceptionalism among within America. And it frames America as a country sort of founded by white people for white people. Which is like, yeah, kind of true, but it, it, it ignores the context of the, the, of the nature of the country and the makeup of the country this whole time. Mm. Which is why I just find it ridiculous that... I just find... I, I find it so weird that you've got Australians flocking to see it in Sydney. Because it's like, we're just flocking to see a piece of propaganda from another country. Like, it seems always <laughs> more excusable if it was like... Australia's equivalent to Hamilton but even that I don't think Australia's equivalent would ever get made because I just there'd be so much outrage if we made a, a musical about the founding of Australia and cast indigenous Australians as the as the main roles and didn't yeah. you know what I mean I just I just don't actually see that flying in like the mainstream culture that we have now and the weird thing to think about is that like that would also be the story of America if it wasn't for like the American Revolution. You know, people people tend to like to describe the American Revolution as like this this victory for democracy. But like democracy for whom? When America was founded, like the United States were founded, only a tiny minuscule pro pro proportion of the population had voting rights because you had to be what a white man above 30 who owned a certain amount of land, right? Yeah. So it ended mm -hmm. up being democracy for like 4% of the population. It's clearly not, in my mind, not a win for democracy as much as it is a win. It's just a bunch of, like, a, a, a sort of ruling class not wanting to be subservient to another ruling class across the ocean and stirring up sentiment and, have, and, and, and engaging this revolution in order to, do, to, in order to achieve that. And if, if that didn't, hadn't occurred in America, obviously it's hard to say it's with, like, whataboutism, but, like, at least in that case, so much of their identity would be kind of similar to ours in that, like, acknowledging the fact that we live on stolen land, right? And America is also stolen land, but that just doesn't end up really focusing globally in the narrative of how, of their, of the, the way, the, of how their nation was founded, because it's sort of glossed over by the fact that these white people fought these other white people, right? I mean, I think it's also... And I know this isn't quite what you're saying. We have to be careful. Like, 
in Australia does not do a good job of acknowledging either that we oh, no. are stolen land. Right? Oh, no, but I think even but even at a tokenistic level, there's like the acknowledgement of country at every single major event. You know, it's like, mm. it's there, mm. even if it's not done a good job of it, at least there's some kind of token, mm. even even if it's a, like not a good one. But and, even in America, and, there's just no kind of equivalent of that. At and all. also like in the narrative of Australia being founded as a nation, because there wasn't this conflict with, with like the homeland or the, like the colonial homeland, there like it's the only way that the narrative is built is by acknowledging Australia's colonial past, right? Like I think Australia as a whole identifies with the concept of being a colonial nation way more than America does. And I'm not saying that's only because of the American Revolution. And it's also it's because America was like a global superpower, right? And so it's kind of it's hard to it it, it when you're at the top of the list in terms of like power projection and GDP and whatever and and economic influence, it's hard to see yourself as a colony. But at the same, but like I do think that it filters down. It 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 can filter down to the fact that you know, because we didn't have that that sort of colonial revolt. There's nothing else in our story to tell apart from the story of actual like colonialism and invasion, right? And it's it's weird that even the way that we're taught colonialism in high school is almost. I wouldn't say necessarily the glorification of it, but it's the nuance of being taught that basically a bunch of people came over from England and completely destroyed a culture like that was thousands, hundreds of thousands of years old that was here in Australia and forced their own culture onto this country. That nuance isn't something that you're really taught when you're first taught about the history of Australia, right? You And I think partly because we te- we start teaching Australians so young when it's like, we don't think it's appropriate to tell the full sort of violent nature of our history. Cause I remember like year three is when we first learned about Australian colonialism mm. in, in my schooling career. And at that point, if you're not game to go into the nuance of quite how of the actual nature of what colonialism and invasion looks like, because I very much remember like use of the word settlers, you know, and like really, really strong focus on like, these were the convicts and these were the free settlers and, and these like, you know, this, this is what the first fleet was made up of and not like Captain Cook was literally told not to claim land and then claimed land based off of a, a off of Terra Nullius, which in our own Supreme courts has been <laughs> struck down as like a valid reason. And that started a, you know, basically a, a 200 year long campaign of subjugation against indigenous people. If you're not willing to talk talk to third graders about that, you shouldn't really be teaching them that because in the meantime, you're filling their head with this idea of like mostly peaceful settlement, right? Mm. And that just, it's, it's just not sustainable. It's not like, it's not a good basis to be building yep. national identity off of. But of course, when that's what's happening in the classroom, that's what you, that's, that's the impression that you're giving people, giving kids. It's not really like, maths or something where you can tell kids ha ha like negative numbers don't exist and then like the next year you're like ha ha negative numbers do exist like mm. once you tell them this stuff it's it's like i think it's harder to build the nuance from the the basics that you provide mm-hmm. at that that young level you can't really then turn around and say actually all this stuff we taught you wasn't actually quite right like yeah, i think you mm. kind of have to go into it with 
Exactly. The, yeah. Because the, it's an identity building lesson. Mm, it's an yeah. identity building class, right? Um, which is, yeah, like it's why it's it's taken me a long time, but like being like half German and having much of my like German family, it's kind of like when I when I tell people that, especially when you're a kid and you you talk about that, people are very people are like, Oh, so like were well, your grandparents Nazis and you know, and, and they ask about the context of your family. And it's not like I'm saying that they, they shouldn't do that. And it's not like I try and shy away from the fact that, like, you know, I have Nazis in my family. They're all dead, thankfully. But, you know, and, and it's the people who weren't Nazis, they weren't exactly anti-fascists because they lived a, an adequate enough life during the war. Um, they didn't, you know, rock enough boats. And, like, that's kind of... That is a sort of generational guilt that does exist among German people in my experience. And it's something that I've definitely experienced, but it's taken until like I got to university to be like, Oh no, I don't just have genocide on one side of my family. I have genocide on both sides of my family. (laughs) Like I am a, I am a product of genocide and like, you know, violence and violence enacted on others. Right. But, you know, I suppose ultimately, like, I'm grateful that I'm able to acknowledge that. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say, like, one genocide trivializes the other. But it's it's something that I think in hindsight it shouldn't have taken me until I'm, like, 21. Yeah, I mean, I mean you're, you're right. We don't, like, there's nothing that, like, makes us critically analyze our past in that context mm. from, like, an Australian perspective where you go, actually, my ancestors probably most likely did shitty things yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like we're just not taught to think that way yeah because when you learn about like colonialism like to be honest i reckon like the most discussion of colonialism i, I had in high school was probably in literature and we were talking about things like it was reading shakespeare's the tempest talking about how like that talks about colonialism and it was kind of like it's colonial a critique of how colonialism can be a bad thing and but that lens wasn't applied to you know what happened in Australia. And I think it's, it comes down to you, this analogy of being in year three, right? It comes back to this thing of humans were ultimately looking for some kind of like something to identify with, like a group to be a part of. And it's almost easier to slip into that slipstream of not challenging that identity. Because I think as a, as a whole, Australia is still struggling with its identity. Oh yeah. And like Australia doesn't know how to, how to like, how to deal with this, horrific past of the last 200 years and again you said earlier that we live in a bubble here and like again we live in a bubble here in in, in, at this university right and living here at bruce because like you know i'd say maybe talk to 80 percent of people and they'll be like oh yeah like we live on stolen land um like australia doesn't do enough to like reconcile with its past you know you'd probably be like they'll probably agree with the statement that like white colonists enacted a genocide against indigenous peoples but like if if you step outside into like the rest of australia that is like a fringe perspective Mm. you know Mm. and it's kind of that is kind of like a daunting thing right like it's 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 a depressing fact to be like oh yeah i am living in this bubble but just by virtue of the fact that i'm living in a bubble doesn't invalidate the fact the (laughs) invalidate the fact that like i'm right Mm. (laughs) yeah Mm. And I think even within this bubble, I mean, people don't like feeling that they 
are actively playing a part in mm. something that is bad. But, like, I'd say all of us do still perpetuate this power mm. and hierarchy that currently exists. And But people aren't, even in this bubble, aren't really going to ad- admit that, I would say, mm. unless the like they've had that critical thinking certainly like i would say like probably a lot of the like first and second years like because it's just not like even in university you're not it's not really something you think about and then like in those higher courses and and stuff like where you kind of start getting different approaches and perspectives and stuff then it's like when it comes in uh, that's been my experience i I don't know for Mm -hmm. what that's been like for other people but yeah and then you kind of realize actually like there's a difference between recognizing that kind of base level stuff but then also the the next step is then that personal level of reconciliation and, and working through that, which I mean, like I personally am only like at the beginning of my journey and, but you know, it, it's a, it's another step where you have to go. I am like still actively perpetuating this stuff. Even if I don't, even if I don't necessarily feel like I am, mm. that's still just something that I'm doing. Just like be just passively existing mm. in a sense. Mm. And on, on the topic of like education in Australia, you know, trying to absolve my the potential implication of like what I said earlier, but like comparing our past, our self-perception to America's self-perception, the, the broad brush, which the Australian education system paints first nations with is Mm. so it's like, it's so limiting in nuance. Right. So, you know, I went to, so my school, as far as I know, like no indigenous students at all. And as you do it at, at, like in, in at big events in Australia, you have like a welcome to country and we specify like, you know, we're meeting on Darawal land. And it wasn't until I went to an exhibition on Captain Cook and his journeys in Australia here at the National Museum that I found out that like the Darawal people were, were almost entirely wiped out. You know, like we've the, the remain, you've got like one clan that like remains and its lineage is like, not entirely they're not entirely confident in in, in, in the lineage to like the original Darwell people but like you know they they have the title of like Darwell people it's like i was born and lived my entire life on Darwell land and yet i didn't know that the Darwell people almost entirely killed out you know mm-hmm. and it, it it took me coming here to like Namaji country and going <laughs> to an exhibition about james cook like about a white guy <laughs> about a colonizer in order for me to actually learn learn the fact that the people who like the people that we stole the land that I grew up on, not only like had that land stolen from them, but were almost entirely wiped out. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, like obviously there are still like members of the Darwin Nation who, who are still alive today, but there are other nations that were entirely wiped out, right? But because it's not like the entirety of the initial like million people that inhabited Australia because they weren't wiped out. We still don't really call it a genocide, even though we like Australia in the, in the history of Australian colonialism, entire language groups have been wiped out. Mm. But you know, it happened over a long enough time that people get squeamish about using that word with it. It's part of this broader suppression of the nuances of indigenous culture, right? Like it's the fact that all three of us grew up on different lands, right? And if you look at like language is a, is a really important separate way of marking it because you look at all the different language families mm. across Australia and there's, and there's so many of them. But then when you're, when you're being taught about this stuff in high school, 
that's just not what's happened. And you like, mm-hmm. I, I've, I still remember, I, I haven't finished it yet, but I started reading Dark Emu mm-hmm. um, by Bruce Pascoe. And that's, and that's a, a, I think it's a really important read in terms of it's talking about all, all these things that existed here in Australia before white people came and invaded, invaded the country, right? And it's just like, it's, you're just not taught about that in high school either. Like it's, yeah, again, it's that you're given broad brushstrokes mm-hmm. of a particular, like it's almost like you're, you're given like a stereotypical character in a story mm-hmm. rather than like n- nuances of a, mm-hmm. of not just one complex culture, but over a hundred, uh, hundreds of complex cultures that existed around Australia and, and, and interacted with each other. It's so clear that like the Western perception of like, oh, England versus Germany as like nations was just uncaringly applied to, to Australia as well. And it was like the implication being that all indigenous people were somehow like one united people, which is, you know, I suppose like genetically there's similarities there. But like, other than that, there's, you can't just apply a European hegemony and a European worldview onto it. Be like, yeah, that's it. That's the nuance that we're going to teach and, our children with. And they did that everywhere. And it just caused problems everywhere. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. look at Africa. They just divided that up however they wanted. And then they were like, and you know, it just caused so many problems because you just grouped people with no real connection into one country and you've gone... Cool, that's one country, and it just doesn't make any sense in, and similarly, in that context. The, the partition of India with the British yeah. were on in India as well. And sorry, looping all the way back to Hamilton, In the Heights, objectively a better music musical than Hamilton. In the Heights is the musical that Lin Manuel Miranda wrote before Hamilton. But of course, because it doesn't pander to this sort of like, I'm a white person who considers themselves to be woke and liberal, and these people sort of like play into the way that I want to see the world. And, you know, they they justify this worldview that I was taught in the same way that, like, you know, Australians are taught about their colonial history. And because it justifies and it feeds into that and it feeds into this American exceptionalism, that's how Lin-Manuel Miranda got all of this praise with Hamilton. When if you actually look at In the Heights, it's, it's a story, it, it is also filled with non-white actors, and it's actually about non-white people living in America and achieving the American dream or the struggles they have with the American dream and how much they contribute to America. You know, how many Tonys did that get? I actually don't know. He got a few, but not as many as... He got, like, like two? Yeah, not not. And then Hamilton gets, like, 13, and it gets nominated for, like, 16. You know, it's like, there's a clear indication here (laughs) of what's happening. Also, Lin-Manuel Miranda, not really a, a... great person i think in general <laughs> which is something else i think you have to keep in mind when you consuming works of art is mm. who the artist is and what their beliefs are going to be when they seep into the artwork inevitably mm. I, yes. what i love there is like you know it's, it's sort of tapping into like death of the author as a concept you know can you actually distance the author's work from the author and the answer to that is objectively no you know like you look at jk rowling and people are like oh my god she's a turf i wouldn't have known oh my god she's anti anti-semite i would have known but like the hints were there you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the goblins were clearly an, an anti-semitic like quote trope uh house elves being like enslaved but it's mm. best that they're enslaved because they're too powerful otherwise yeah, that was, that's weird that's even reading that so, as a kid. Yeah. the whole house elves thing which is neatly ignored in the movies as yeah. well yeah. all the house elves thing. it's a very weird subplot of harry potter isn't it and just like the trivialization of hermione for like seeing an oppressed class and being like this is 
awful because she comes from from like muggle society right and she's able to be like uh that's slavery that's oppression but then it's like oh ha 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 look at her being over the top call her her organization spew you know obviously that didn't make it into the movies and then like rita skeeter definitely fits anti-trans tropes as well who was it contrapoints i want to say natalie Wynn made like a video about turfs and gender quote-unquote gender critical people and the description that jermaine greer gave of a trans woman it's like so obviously like the same tropes that jk rowling wrote frida skeeter to fulfill as like sort of mannish and and predatory and but because but i feel like for us for our generation watching the movies at the same time like couching the books in the movies kind of like maybe made made us more oblivious to it because obviously that sort of stuff didn't make it into the movies but my point with like death of the author is that whenever this comes up i always think like for a long time my favorite book was ender's game by Orson Scott yes, Card. Yes, I was going to bring this up. <laughs> Ender's, Game, Ender's Game is an amazing book and it's disproportionately loved by queer people because it feels like a queer story and it's not like a queer baby sort of way. It's like a clear allegory that it feels like it was written for people who, who just don't quite fit in in a way that they can't describe, right? Yeah, but and Orson has Scott like Card, power structures and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Orson Scott Card is an objectively disgusting person with some of his views like like he's he's i want to say he's super mormon yeah he's a mormon so like homophobic to like a violent degree Mm -hmm. like some of his quotes he like he it seems like he genuinely thinks that gay people should be rounded up and killed and obviously as you know you're never just like one flavor of bigot like he's a (laughs) he's sexist he's a white supremacist and so on and so forth and like for a while when i learned about that i didn't know what to think about my favorite book but i've just decided that like queer people have like he like death of the author can only go so far when these bigoted people sometimes accidentally make write queer stories without even realizing it you know? i read the entire ender's quartet oh me too year. me too oh wonderful <laughs> and like so i've never actually read any of them so can we have a quick summary for me and the listeners oh it makes them? no like you can't <laughs> so okay. it's not it's, possible. it takes place over like two thousand years yeah <laughs> but like, like i i you might I actually just... enjoy it partly because it, it has some hard sci-fi elements in that like they travel until you get re- to the last the last yes yeah, yeah. they travel relativistically that's why it happens over 2000 years ah, right yeah because like okay do a lot of like, yeah. Done right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah and also like ender's game very much can survive as its own as as an independent book because the mm. like ender's game ender is a child i think he's like 13 at the end yeah and he starts like nine or something yeah yeah, yeah. And the next book doesn't start until he's like forty. Yeah, 30, yeah, 30, yeah. 40? It's yeah. like a massive amount of time. And then, yeah. and then those three books are very attached to each other. Like they, yeah, they, yeah. they stand. They, they obviously rely on Ender's Game, but they also rely on each other. But Ender's yeah. Game, you can just read it as yeah. an independent. And Ender's Game and is more kind like of think, a young adult yeah, kind of style yeah. than a. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of think, and like, you know, you should. I would encourage people to read Ender's Game. Get a copy of a, out of from a library or get a secondhand copy because no money should be going to Orson's Yeah, <laughs> yeah download it illegally online yeah. like I yeah. did. Do that. Reading the other books, kind of, I'm like, okay, I can kind of see certain... Yeah, I, I would say from the second book here. onwards. Yeah. Like, it's quite obvious where it's like, 
set 3,000 years in the future and still the only view of marriage is that it's between a man and a woman. Yeah. <laughs> like, and you're like, hmm, I don't yeah. know about that. And, and they're sent to this like explicitly Catholic colony. Yeah. And it's like very clear, like certain Mormon perceptions of Catholicism <laughs> come through. There's literally and, like, a part in the in the book where, where it says, oh, Ender's messed up as an adult because he, he never fulfilled like... The one true goal of man, which is to make love to a woman. Yeah. Like, that's basically Jesus. like a okay. line in the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. also, I suppose as well, like, any any sci-fi portrayal of the future that still has, like, modern races extant in the way that this movie, this, yeah, this book series this did. so strange that, that entire planets are based on countries and cultures yeah. today. Yeah. Wait, so there's, like, a, a planet that is entirely Japanese culture. Yeah. And okay. a planet that's entirely Chinese culture and a planet that's entirely, entirely Maori, like Pacific Islander culture. Also, like, they do spend some time, and it seems like, it, at least to me, maybe I'm reading into it, but, like, there's this one, I want to say it was called Trondheim, the planet. Trondheim is a city in Norway, and it's, like, very, it's, like, very Scandinavian, yep. right? Mm. And it, it seems to me that, like, Orson Scott Card's kind of portraying that as, like, the most enlightened society among these planets, <laughs> yeah, right? It's true. Because they just like they sit there and they talk about philosophy and and the 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 history of religion, and that's another thing, right? Like, re- like, so, Olsen Scott Card's racism really comes through by the fact that races as we know them today still exist three thousand years <laughs> in the future. Yeah, it's really strange. And also, like, religion hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah. Except the one that Ender makes up. The, yeah, the, the, yeah. That's, that's the only that's the only one. Yeah. <laughs> we're, well, anyway, we're getting quite far. Anyway, what, what I was going to say about about the Ender's Quartet is the I would say the main theme of the the entire quartet is that. People can't control who they are, and so you should like be nice to everyone, and that like that's mm-hmm. like kind of the main thing. But it, it like it, it has it has like it has like alien nice. races and deals with like the like analogous mm-hmm. idea of of xenocide, which is the total like annihilation of an alien race, like mm-hmm. a genocide is with mm-hmm. a, a human race, and so the entire book is like grappling with these questions of oh, is it is it right to kill something when you don't understand mm-hmm. the that they have a different kind of culture and a different understanding of how mm-hmm. life works and and that kind of thing and that like the second book does that does that really well I thought but then I just don't know how you can write a book with that as your main theme and yet still be racist homophobic <laughs> like you like still believe that you shouldn't be nice to people based on fundamental differences yeah. I, it <laughs> yeah. makes no sense for, from my perspective uh, to me it kind of feels like he wrote Ender's Game and like saw so many queer people identifying with it that he goes to try and like touch it up with the, the rest of the books in in the quartet and just failed at that so miserably because <laughs> again his point is like you need to be able to co- to communicate and like not jump to hatred yep. in order to understand someone you know and <laughs> this is literally like the main plots of the book it's it's, it's really i have someone who's not read the books it's actually, it's really funny hearing this description because you're describing this guy and then you're also describing his books and the messages of the the books are such in contrast with what this <laughs> character the characterizing you provided this person like it doesn't like make sense that one could come from the other which is why it was just so shocking to find out what an awful human being Olsen Scott Card was yeah yeah because it just it just doesn't try like Maybe he has a ghostwriter, and the ghostwriter is like, you know, some repressed gay 
in the south of America <laughs> you know, or in like the mountains of Utah, right? And we just, he's just going to get found out after all these years. I don't know. I think he's still alive. Yeah. So I suppose that, that fits into the, I do actually agree with your perception of like, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't engage with death of the author in, with Hamilton, but like there are limits to that where like sometimes bigots are just accidentally not bigoted. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But there's still always elements that come through in their work. Oh yeah, yeah the yeah. sexism definitely is a part of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there's oh, yeah. no strong female characters, and all female characters exist in order to be like foils to men, like yeah. a foil to yeah. Ender. Ender has a sister and a brother, and like it's literally sister, like it's sister, literally like so his brother and sister, they're like fourteen and fifteen, end up ruling the world. From the internet, from, from the, the internet, internet. which yeah. is which is quite ahead of its time. It's written in the seventies, and like, oh, okay. it's, it's actually like, pretty it's like a surprisingly good forecast of the internet. And but, like trolls, but, and like, and trolls, yeah. <laughs> but um, the the Cold War is still going yeah. on, <laughs> and like the like the enemies are both this you know alien race, this alien race, and. The, the Soviets, <laughs> and also again there, he's like he's still trying to drum up drum up this because he was like very like pro America anti Soviet, and he's still trying to drum up this this thing about like these people are, that you don't really know that much about, but you're just taught your whole life are your enemy. You know, they're maybe not your enemy because okay, spoiler alert to anyone who hasn't read Ender's Game. <laughs> but like, okay, it, it's not. It's, it's not, been out like, forever. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Um, they they made a shitty movie about it. <laughs> Basically, like the twist at the end is the enemy is not actually the enemy, right? Or like more more perhaps more accurately, the enemy didn't actually pose a threat, and they were made the enemy by our perception of them and our fear of them. So the, mm. the enemy are, are like... Again, air. this is all in very strong contrast to what you told me in the yeah. first reviews of the author. It just, it, I just find it so funny that like in this book about not believing that someone is the enemy just because you're afraid of them, he, he preserves <laughs> the Cold War. Yes. Like, the, the buggers, to me, are like an obvious allegory for Russians and for Soviets. <laughs> 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 But I actually kind of find it funny that as a physicist, you're not into sci-fi. Not because I, I think that's, that's, that's rare. Because I, I kind of think I'm rare with how much I love sci-fi as, a, as someone who wants to go into physics. But like... It's not that I'm in, not into sci-fi. It's just that, that I'm not like... I don't prioritize it over other forms of... Li- li- okay, yeah. I, yeah. I think it's like... I think maybe I've been exposed to a bit more of it because, like, assumption that if I'm going to go into a particular bit of literature, it wouldn't be sci-fi. But I don't, like, have any reason to prioritise it over other forms. Of Fair enough, yeah. yeah. But, like, one thing that kind of I'm sometimes a bit embarrassed about is how much sci-fi has shaped my worldview and made me want to go into science. And, like, if you look at where I want to go into, into in science, it's sort of, like, yeah, with the most... Yeah. yeah, like, I... Doing my honours in plasma physics... And my master's degree, I'm, I'm looking at, like, specifically studying fusion science. It's sort of, like, the most realistic sci-fi technology yeah. we have, right? And, like, if I think, if I really think about it, like, I went to a conservative school in a conservative area. And obviously, like, growing up gay kind of 
intrinsically shuffles you towards the left of the political spectrum. Mm. But like, so much of my like political awakening was Star Trek. Because Star Trek is basically like a Marxist society. It's like, <laughs> actually arguably could be interpreted as fascist. <laughs> like, Depends on how you split it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it, it's very much like a society based on like tolerance and inclusion and... Mm. and yeah. Well, I think if, if you yeah. don't apply death of the author, like I think Gene Roddenberry, who was the creator, was very much more on the inclusive and yeah. side of it rather than the fascist side yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And just sort of like an embarrassing amount of my life has been shaped by my love of sci-fi. Because like I, ever since I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be a scientist. And then from like when I was 12, I was like, I'm going to be an astrophysicist. And that's what got me into sci-fi. And then it's just like, since then... A concerning amount of my life can be tracked by, like, the effects sci-fi has had on me. <laughs> but I do feel like that's actually kind of rare as someone who goes into phys- physics. I, I don't know. Like, I think it's... I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's an important... Sci-fi in itself is a way of communicating science, right? Mm. Like, you th- you think about it, like, if you can... If, okay, if we had a great sci- sci- some great sci-fi works that talked about renewable energies for example right mm-hmm. that could go away to dispelling fears about those technologies in society right and like it plays an important role in familiarization with ideas of and so the idea of say for example talk about how ender's game has relativity in it or something like interstellar god forbid i bring up that movie <laughs> oh, <fuck>. <laughs> <laughs> i hate that movie I'm so good. much here we go good thank <laughs> you <laughs> new episode why interstellar sucks no but like it makes you familiar with that kind of content so mm. you're kind of comfortable engaging with it mm. popular science is like there's there's nothing wrong with popular science and science fiction if it mm. like if it makes you comfortable engaging with that stuff that can be the first step you know it's like it's like if pop music made you want to go study music yeah well um, you know actually sci-fi also helped me get into music because when i was a kid i had a got an issue of the doctor who magazine mm. and in that issue was an interview with Murray Gold, who was the composer for, for Doctor Who at oh. the time, and he discussed his his workflow. And I was reading it, and I went, "Hey, that's really cool. I didn't know. I didn't know that was a job I could do." And then, you know, thinking on it, I'm like, "Actually, that probably stuck with me. Like, I didn't I didn't mm. realize it at the time, but kind mm. of looking back on it, I, I was going, you know, that I was reading that at kind of a, the transition between primary school and high school. You know, kind of when you're figuring out your interests and choosing electives and all that kind of thing. And I'm, you know, I'm going. Actually, that probably had a big influence on me wanting to go down that path of like music creation and, and that kind of thing of, of just realizing that this show I loved, I could kind of, in a sense, like maybe not work on it, but like there, there was that kind of link there between mm. what I was doing in a classroom and something that I could feasibly be doing in real life, making something that I enjoyed watching and consuming. If you want a good realistic sci-fi book i read the fountains of paradise uh, at the end of last year which is Mm. by arthur c Clarke, and it details the creation of a space elevator um Mm. and it is actually quite from what i can gather a quite realistic version of how it would be done and like i think even today it's it's a different material to what he proposes in the book but Mm. the way they would do it is like basically the same out of character for arthur c Clarke, to be honest <laughs> being accurate yeah. yeah like it's i think this came like later in in his life maybe not one of the last things he wrote but by the point where he had surpassed a lot of that earlier yeah more fantastical elements and this was kind of a more hmm. grounded science book 
I guess. Which, mm. yeah, but it, worth a read if, if you are interested in that kind of thing. It was, I, I thought it was a nice blend between the, sci- the science concept and it also kind of ties into Sri Lankan like folklore because he, he was living in Sri Lanka at the time where he wrote it. So he kind mm. of ties these two things together between like a, an ancient king of Sri Lanka and this modern space elevator and then there's this character in the middle of it all that has quite a, a good like character arc as well it's, it's it's just a good book would recommend i was fully expecting you to be like the expanse <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> i haven't seen the expanse actually you should oh it's, it's a book series oh it's a book oh i a thought book i thought it was oh, a right. netflix isn't it a netflix well, it, well yeah it's adapted like, into it, it. yeah okay books, yeah. oh okay I didn't um, know it was, I'll, I'll go read them then it's it's the last issue book number nine is coming out this year oh yeah so i'm waiting on that i'm finally caught up to it and it's just kind of like get to the point <laughs> <laughs> let me be free <laughs> but it's actually really well written and it's it says like it says it's written by james S. A. Corey, but that's a pseudonym for two different people oh. um and just the the prospect of co-writing a book is just something i can't wrap my head around like how yeah. because you know if you if you think about like the big books that come to mind, it's like Will Grayson, Will Grayson, but I don't even know the other guy, but it's one of the authors is John Green, you know, and, and those sort of books, they're, they're like, each person just takes a, a chapter, right? They take a point of view character. These authors don't do that. They like, they each take a chapter and then they go and rewrite each other's chapter and then they rewrite the rewrite to their own chapter t- until they have a book together. And I'm just like, I don't think I like anyone in the world and agree with anyone in the world yeah. enough to write nine books. <laughs> and There's these aren't so little many. books. These yeah. are like 500 page books. Yeah. Yeah. But it's surprisingly common in sci-fi. Stephen Baxter and Terry Pratchett did a series together. Did they? Yeah, The, the Long Earth. Mm. I, and I think like, but most of the ones I know are where there's kind of one sci-fi author who's getting a bit old it kind of has an idea for a thing but can't like write it out yeah. and so they get some younger person that's not well, it's up like and what, coming it's in. kind of like what wasn't it terry pratchett who wrote the end to the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy series really yeah. oh yeah maybe he finished it off yeah yeah so why are the last two books in that series are so whack i don't think he did like the full writing i think he just kind of touched them up so they could be maybe Maybe we should actually do our research. We should we bring we, it up in a podcast. I just like you could have Hitchhiker's book one. Oh, I do think book. no, no. One of them, like the the fourth book, happened after like a major depressive episode in the author's life. I think, which is why that one is so bleak compared it's, to it's the rest. It's just such a like four and five are such one can stand by itself, and then one, two, three can be a trilogy, and then four and five are. I remember reading them and being like, to be fair, I think I was also not very old when I read them. Like I'm gonna yeah, say like. Same. Yeah, and and maybe it's like you have to be a bit older to appreciate it. But I remember like after reading them, being like, "What? Can I, can I have a hug?" Yeah. <laughs> maybe you just need some of your own personal depression under your own belt yeah. before you can really appreciate it. Like I, I think I read these like a couple of years ago, and yeah, I was definitely like, "Ah, oh, you can tell he's just kind of like." I think the shift is just he's was happy, and then he's like. It's gone through something real bad, and yeah. that's just coming through in this like very pessimistic kind yeah, of. Yeah, the whimsy got on. swapped out for some like proper nihilism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a lot when you're like eleven or twelve, and you're reading that, and you're yeah. like. But it, of course, the that's the Hitchhiker's Guide series is like 
the type of book that you read when you're that age to prove that you're smart, yes. right? But obviously, oh, but you're not actually smart enough to get it. Like, you're not like, going to appreciate people are like it. like, 42, ha, 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 and yeah. it's like, can we get a different joke, please? <laughs> <laughs> I did actually, this might be an unpopular opinion, but I did actually like the movie adaption. I think I saw the movie before I read the books. Oh, okay. And I, yeah, I thought it was a, a decent movie, but yeah. I haven't seen it since, so... I've never seen the movie because my parents are so aggressively against its existence that they're like... Yeah. Well, I think the problem with any of those major adaptions... Is... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't have a problem with you saying opinions, though, disagree. No, just like, that is... Like, I kind of... I want to know what it was like to be raised by such nerdy people that they have an opinion. <laughs> on that, you know? My parents are definitely nerdy. As in... I'm kind of, like, envious of that. that. Not because, like, mum and dad, you're smart. Like, I love you. <laughs> It's just, you're not nerds, right? Yeah. I just kind of wonder how different I would be if I was raised by people like me. (laughs) When you brought up the Star Trek thing, it was like, my brain was like, my mum will be a fan of Murray. Actually, actually, watching Star Trek was actually a bonding experience between me and my mum because she watched it. Like when it was coming out because my my grandfather was a nerd. I also had this experience with my (laughs) mum. Well, it's because literally I was having, I had one when I was back in Perth a couple of weeks ago. Mm. One of my mates came over for dinner and he mentioned that he'd been starting to watch Star Trek recently. And my mum was so excited <laughs> about that. And I was like asking so many questions. And I was like, yeah. I've, I've only seen the first season of the original trilogy. Oh, that's like not a, a good start. But I, like, I want to keep watching it. It's just, mm. it's just a, like, yeah, I haven't done it. It's only because like, I also, like, I've watched all other Star Trek. I've only watched season one of the original trilogy and I don't really, I'm, in, I'm not really in a rush to watch any more of it. Yeah, I think you have to be in the right mindset for it because yeah. it's very 1960s and very yeah. philosophical, which is good if you're in the mindset but for it, that. But again, but it's, it's like philosophical in in for mass media in 1960. Like we've yes. moved on. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like a lot of it was just like because it was the first time that that ex- idea had been explored in like television sci-fi it's just like so it's just such unnuanced take <laughs> and just like just very strong like twilight what is it twilight zone twilight zone vibes like not twilight as in the, uh, in the <laughs> yeah, vampire like, story the vampire story but yeah well it's, it actually almost loops back to this this beatles thing that we mentioned a while back right it's just kind of like it's when you're looking back on some of these things mm. because because star trek has influenced a lot of modern sci-fi oh right? yeah definitely. so it's like it's kind of like it makes sense that if you're going to it having seen a lot of modern stuff mm. that the ideas aren't going to be as original or like mind-blowing i feel like i should also qualify in that like you know talking about how star trek has shaped my political like <laughs> compass you know my ident- my political identity i just want to acknowledge that like at its core most of star trek especially like next generation onwards is kind of like borderline neoliberal i just want to acknowledge that like i'm not saying star trek is perfect right yeah and especially i feel like Mm. an especially prominent aspect of this is like in the fandom the way that star trek voyager is received even to this day star trek voyager is until the current season of of star trek the only one that focused on a female character Mm -hmm. captain janeway of the star trek voyager and like it just receives such disproportionate hate from the star trek community and it's, like, so obviously just because it focuses on a strong, independent woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> sci-fi is so bad with this, like, in yeah. general. It's just... Yeah. And it, it's kind of, It just... Start, like, sci-fi tries to spoon-feed its audience 
of like undersocialized white men <laughs> sitting like, in a room in the living room and doing a podcast. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I'm exempt against from it. <laughs> just trying to like spoon feed them, I, like you know, like they're able to accept all of this about like Star Trek ideals of like tolerance and acceptance. But as soon as you like, Put and women in. are cool too. They're like, <laughs> no, Janeway's the worst captain. Oh, she did. She abandoned her crew. She stranded her crew in the Delta Quadrant. What, what even is the moral of this story? And it's like, so much of your hatred is so clearly towards the idea of women and not this one character. But like, no one has the self-awareness to be like, maybe we should like critically analyze how, you know, understanding, you know. <laughs> and if you look at the worst two rated Star Trek shows, it's Star Trek Discovery, whose main character is a black woman. And Star Trek Voyager, whose main character is a woman. Mm. Like, mm. pretty clear correlation, right? Because mm. as soon as you put, a, like, a woman in the in the spotlight, people are like, they're, they're shoving it down our throats. Yeah. This is just PC culture have gone we, too far. And it's like, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's like, you have had 120 years of sci-fi focusing on men. Yes. <laughs> Can we please just have a female captain? <laughs> One time I was on YouTube. Well, uh, on YouTube many times, but mm. one particular time I was on YouTube, <laughs> got a got a video like thing. You know, it was a Doctor Who video, so I just clicked on it, and, and immediately this this man pops up on my on my screen, and he's going, "Oh, the new Doctor is is terrible, and they're trying to shove this agenda down our throat." And I just noped out of it quickly, but you know, because I clicked on it, then like I started getting all these like mm. right wing Doctor Who fanatics in my YouTube feed, and I was like, "No, I don't want this." But like, it's it's just also like that easy to get like radicalized in a sense where you just you click on one thing like you know if i was like if i was like Mm. 12 years old you know i click on one thing suddenly i've got that and then half my youtube feed is now similar things just perpetuating these ideas and then i grew up to be an insect i feel like tiktok is like the left-wing equivalent (laughs) of like what youtube does to you know like is there right-wing tiktok Oh, there is, but I feel like it's 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 not as like like it's not as prolific. Like a lot of the right wing use TikTok and they <laughs> they, they convince the memes don't slap as hard. They definitely don't. <laughs> um, like a lot of actually a lot of right wingers use TikTok to like they convince the algorithm that they're leftists and then they like spread hate on left wing channels. Right. Jeez. So, okay. I mean, yes, there is right wing TikTok, but it's not as thrive. You know. It's not known as thriving. But, like, YouTube, like, that, it's, that is the sole reason that, like, Jordan Peterson, Steven Crowder, and Ben Shapiro still have people listening to them. It's because YouTube has optimized the, like, this guy's white and male. We should recommend him all of these, like, <laughs> absolute, like, this brain, brain rotting Ben Shapiro schools university <laughs> feminist, right? Yeah. It's easy to fall down that pipe hole. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's, that's the thing about the the internet and, like, these algorithms. They just create echo chambers. And, like, everything you're in the, on the internet is some form of echo chamber for, like, it's like it's a bubble, yeah. right? Like, mm. And that's how I got onto music theory TikTok. It's because there was discourse about what time signature Hey Ya is in. And I watched like two of these videos and now you, now TikTok is like, okay, you're, you're like, you know, music theory, you're into music theory. And I'm like, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm enjoying the chance to learn more about it. Right. But I'm just like, similarly, how easy would it be to have like one pro gun 
yeah. TikTok and you spend like on average like a fraction of a second more and it's like oh okay your like the content that I see and the content that that person sees just completely diverge like there's no overlap in that Venn diagram yeah you said you had a thing you wanted to bring up right at the end of the show yeah. which is okay. the end of three shows now so yeah. they've been waiting a long time <laughs> for the, the end of three shows <laughs> it's gonna be the end of three shows oh my <laughs> so um a confession. So I got my friend of the show status by doing some annoying maths, right? Yeah. And showing, like, I, I got White Noise as my number two podcast on my Spotify wrapped last year. Yeah. I, I showed you guys that actually I, I got a higher percent. I listened to a higher percentage by 0.1% of White Noise compared to my number one podcast. My confession is that I actually listen to hundreds of hours of podcasts a year. I just don't do it on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you guys were a hundred percent not my top, not my top podcast in a long way. We got played. Look, I respect the hustle. That's, I, that's, that's, that's so, so legendary. You, you know, I'm not even mad. You can keep, you can keep the friend of the show. So I feel like as well, like being here for three episodes, I've kind of earned my spot. Oh yeah, <laughs> but even even if you were only here for what, like you know, even if you just told us that, like. Honestly, I was expecting you to say like, oh, I lied about the math. Because I was ready for you to say you lied about the math. I was going to say, get out. But like, (laughs) as soon as you said you used used a different platform. Yeah, that's so fair. It was was Christmas Day. I couldn't go home because of a Sydney lockdown. So I was like at Emma and Tiff's place and having Christmas with them. Mm. And you did that call out in your Christmas special. Yeah. And I was there like kind of tipsy because (laughs) Emma... Doesn't understand how to make cocktails. Like her idea of it. Like if you can't, if you're not like repulsed by the aftertaste of a cocktail, and was like, this needs to be stronger. <laughs> so like, I was like struggling to remember numbers. <laughs> but I went. And did so the, the numbers maths. might be wrong. No, 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 no. no, no. I, did, I did the maths twice <laughs> and got Tiff. To check my numbers <laughs> before recording that voice message. No, no. So, are, so you, my... are you tipsy in that voice message? Oh yeah. <laughs> That's I, why I'm like. Can I just say? I, can that's I just why say, you you must be you must be wondering why I've gathered you here today. Who starts a voice message like that? I, I would start a voice message like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, like <laughs> genuinely thought you like did not pick that you were tipsy during that voice message. Well, I'm just such, oh, yeah, a, I'm such was, a serious person. You sent yeah. it on Christmas Day. That's did, right. Yeah, that's really funny. Friend of the show number seven. Yeah, you can take that home it, just, it ties into what we were saying about universities earlier where, where you, know, you, you hide you hide the things you don't want you don't want to be known yeah, and you just yeah. present the things that, that make you look good <laughs> and you did that expertly this time well played yeah, that's so well played can I ask what streaming platform do you listen to most other podcasts on I use Pocket Cast which is just like an RSS feed mm. compiler we're on Pocket Cast you are <laughs> We should be <laughs> good because I'll switch from using you from listening to your Spotify. <laughs> but then you won't be number one. We won't be number one on your Spotify Wrapped. Well, I have listened to some episodes of the, you this year, and I don't really plan on listening to any other podcasts on Spotify. Look, the thing you have to keep in mind with the Spotify thing is is our podcast host is Anchor, which is owned by Spotify. So there's better integration with with Spotify, which I think is why we get encouraged to promote. Spotify wrapped and we have those we can get like promotional cards for Spotify for our show when we can Wait, do we? We, can, we can we can like they just like you ge- you generate this is, one this is news to me. I know I, yeah. I sent this to you at the start of the I year actually, but I do want to say that with your name it might be easier to attract listeners on something that isn't 
Spotify because if you type in white noise, oh, it comes Spotify. up with like, yeah, yeah, a lot yeah, of like yeah. white noise albums, yeah. right? Well, that's the but that's the it, it can tie into our thing because people, you know, we don't care if people actually hear what we're saying. If they use us to fall asleep, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but you still want people to find you. Well, they can. <laughs> Eventually, we'll be popular enough that, that okay. they will. Yeah. Josh, much they tenuously cares about the growth of the podcast and also does not really care about the growth of the well, podcast. I, 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 I do. I think but it I is think kind of cute that it, like you have to look for you, right? Which means that it's really like your friends. <laughs> are the ones and who also, this podcast. A, large, an alarming number of people in Ohio... Oh, yes, we have a we have a twenty five percent of our audience base is in the US, and originally I saw that and I thought that was just Black as family in the US, and then I, I clicked on it one day and it gave me a like more detailed back breakdown by and state. The states that my family are in don't crack. They're like <laughs> no, wow. so it's just random okay. people in the United States that are listening to us. You say that with like such shock and disgust like <laughs> no well i'm just i'm just i i kind of am surprised that they're listening to us because I, I i don't you know really good for them they have good taste we also have like shout uh, out to ohio we Buckeyes? That's someone, ohio, right? someone in saudi arabia listens to us saudi arabia's the other day i listened back to some of our old stuff and it's actually it's kind of funny listening back to like some of our really really old stuff because some of it is god awful <laughs> some of it some of it slaps. <laughs> Some of it's just pure unbridled chaos. Well, and it was enough to get to number two on my Spotify Wrapped. That's true. Exactly. That's true. And and also, uh, do you remember there was a period of time where we were in the top hundred comedy podcasts in Egypt? Oh yes, we did get sent yeah. something for this. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, guys! Thank you, thank you. Not anymore, I don't think. <laughs> oh, what a shame. But yeah, like Saudi Arabia, and was briefly we had like I think it was was it Kazakhstan. Yeah, something like that. It was, it was. I get a feeling that it might be easy to crack the top hundred in some of these countries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, but as in they were a large portion of our listener base was in Kazakhstan, and then, and then suddenly disappeared. But Saudi Arabia has been our number three for a consistent period of time. Well, like tied number three because we've got like two percent in yeah. every single like other country. Oh, right. Yeah. True. But, yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a little, it's a little stats chat to finish up. Love some stats. But we never hear from these listeners. That's the thing. I want, I want to hear like the only listeners that I've heard from are people I know or people mm. Josh knows. Mm-hmm. I would love to like have someone from Ohio, like write into the podcast. Yeah, people from Ohio. If you like Hamilton and don't think I have a nuanced enough perception <laughs> yeah, t- of American history, feel free to let me know. Yeah. Tell us everything we got wrong about America. Because yeah. also, they was, they only got the, the... What they actually heard, right, was the the bit that was recorded. So they didn't yeah. hear... They kind of heard the start of the discussion. Then they missed the, like, the the 20 minutes where we kind of like fleshed everything out and talked everything through. And then they got the, like the five to 10 minute summary at the end, yeah, which is much. kind of the recap. So the, like, there's probably like a few little nuanced details that got missed there. And so there's probably like a few logical jumps. They're like, what? Where'd that come from? <laughs> So that would be very interesting correspondence. Just, you know, it was a very impassioned and very well-reasoned argument. That's all you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the best podcast we've ever done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Certainly the most we've done in one night. <laughs> and on that note, on that we note, should probably finish it up. <laughs> yeah.